0: Our reading, as you know, will be from Matthew 12, reading from verse 22. Jesus and Beelzebub. They brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of your heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken, for by your mouths you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the teachers, the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, "Teachers, uh, teacher, we want to see a miracle, a miraculous sign from you." He answered. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through and places seeking through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. They go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Jesus' mother and brothers. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. May the Lord bless that reading from his word.
1: Well, uh, it's one of those questions that goes around uh, often, isn't it? Uh, whose side are you on? Uh, you know, it comes out around the time of the footy grand final. Uh, who are you going for? Uh, you know, Hawthorne or the Swans? Easy choice, go the, go the Swans. But um, uh, it's one of those questions, uh, isn't it, that, uh, that often comes up. I was listening to uh, Les Mis, Do you know Les Miserables, uh, that musical. I, uh, I love Les, Les Mis and uh, I was listening to it yesterday and uh, there's a song at the end called Red and Black uh, and it's a song about whose side are you on? Marius, is, uh, he's one of the students in the student uh, revolution uh, in France and uh, he's met a girl. Uh, I can't think of a name, but uh, anyway, he's met the girl and the guys are singing, as uh, guys do, they're singing a song and they're saying, uh, Marius, who are you going to choose? Uh, are you going to go with, uh, with the girl? What's her name? Fontaine, yeah, yeah. Uh, are you going to go with her or are you going to go with, uh, with the revolution? Uh, are you going to go with your heart? Or are you going to go uh, with this revolution that might change France? Whose side are you on? Are you on your side or on our side? Well, Jesus uh, is really driving at that too, when he talks to the Pharisees they've been driving at that for, uh, for ages, as we 've been going through matthew uh, and it turns out, I think in this particular passage that maybe it's not as clear or as easy to work out as you might think. The uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law of Jesus' day clearly thought that uh, they were on God's side. Uh, If you had have asked them, whose side are you on? They would have said, we're on God's side. Uh, But Jesus comes to them and he says, actually, maybe it's not that clear. Maybe you're not on the side that you think you're on. Whose side are you on? Uh, it's an important question and how can you know? How can you know whose side you're on? And this section in Matthew uh, helps us to deal with that question. What's interesting I think is that uh, the, way, the place that the passage starts uh, is with the Pharisees asking whose side Jesus is on. Uh, there's, uh, Jesus has been doing all these miracles of late and so some people decide to bring to him a demon possessed man Uh, who can't see and who can't speak Uh, and Jesus uh, heals the man so that he can see and he can speak Uh, and the people are amazed. Uh, The people who see it are amazed and they ask, is this the son of David? Is this the, the promised Messiah that God said that he would send? Come to save us, come to save the world. That's what the people think but the Pharisees have another idea. They think, well this is a great miracle but how do we know that this isn't just something uh, that Satan is doing? How do we know that this isn't just Satan's power rather than God's power? They say it's by Beelzebub or by Satan that this fellow drives out demons. Now, I reckon the Pharisees thought that they'd hit on a pretty plausible objection. Uh, They couldn't deny the miracle. Uh, Anyone with eyes could see that this person who'd been demon-possessed was now not and could now see uh, and speak Uh, but what they did was to question well how do we know, how do we know that his power is from God and not from Satan and Jesus says well actually the answer is really obvious. Uh, The answer is obvious because uh, it would be dumb if this power was from Satan, Uh, it would be really stupid Jesus says, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan was working against himself, driving out demons, then Satan's kingdom would fall. It doesn't make any sense. It's like scoring an own goal. You know, It's just dumb and a little bit embarrassing as well. Uh, it's not only really dumb, it's counterproductive. Uh, it's counterproductive because it works against what you're trying to achieve. It's not only counterproductive, it's unsustainable. How do you win a game if you keep scoring own goals? You can't. It just doesn't work. But if Jesus isn't on Satan's side, then he must be on God's side. And if that's the case, Jesus says in verse 29, it must mean that he's bound Satan. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. Jesus is robbing Satan's house. He's plundering it because he's bound Satan. His, uh, his miraculous ministry is showing that he has has overcome Satan in a way that no one else before him has ever done. And Jesus says that must mean that the kingdom of God has come to the earth. But Jesus uh, isn't content to stay there. His his point isn't just to say, well, look, there's uh, there's two sides, there's Satan's side and there's my side and and, uh, I'm on God's side uh, and isn't that nice? His point is to say, there's two sides, which side are you on? Are you on my side? Because if you're not on my side, then you must be on Satan's side. Do you see, Jesus has turned their logic back on himself. Oh, it's by the prince of demons that he's driving out demons. no by God's power and if you're against me then who else are you against? Jesus says to these disciples my miracles prove I'm against Satan and if you're not with me you must be with him. That's so important for us to realise I think that if we're not with Jesus we're automatically with Satan. Whoever is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. Whoever doesn't, whoever doesn't gather with me, scatters. You may never have made a conscious decision to reject Jesus. You may never have decided to become an atheist. You might be deeply religious. Uh, you might have been born into a Christian home. You might, uh, you, you know, you might have been. Uh, a good Catholic all your life, but if you haven't embraced the person of Jesus Christ, then you're not with Jesus. You're actually with Satan. It's amazing, isn't it? It's like the most spectacular double cross. You know, it's like uh, it's like living a life that's been a lie. You know, imagine that you're uh, enlisted. Uh, you know, someone comes to you and says. I- I'm from the CIA and I, you know, I want you to work for me. You know, and they enlist you and for 30 years you give your life to handing over secrets. And actually it turns out that they don't work for the CIA. This entire time you've been working for the KGB and your life is a sham. Jesus says, if you're not with me, your life is a sham. And actually, though you might not know it, you're working for Satan. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Imagine this don't even know. You must consciously embrace Jesus. There is no middle ground. Not only that, you need to embrace the real Jesus. I think when, uh, when Steve Wakeford was here a, a few weeks ago, he talked about the different kinds of Jesuses that people concoct. You know, I think it was a hippie Jesus. That's all I can remember um, from listening to, listening to the talk afterwards. Uh, People, people invent all kinds of different Jesuses to suit their appetites. you know. But if you don't know the actual Jesus, the real Jesus, then you're in league with Satan as well. Jesus is a real person. He's God. He's the real God. He has real characteristics. And if you don't know the real one, then you don't know him at all. Uh, the Mormon Jesus isn't the real Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses Jesus isn't the real Jesus. And the liberal Jesus uh, who loves you and wants you to, uh, to, to do whatever you want, whatever sin you want to indulge, that Jesus isn't the real Jesus either. Imagine that uh, someone uh, came to you, you probably don't have to imagine this, it probably happens to you all the time, but imagine that someone came to you very excited and said, I know Carl Dienick. Uh, and uh, they were just ecstatic, uh, as you would be. Uh, and they said, I know Carl. And he said, that's fantastic. I know Carl as well. Why don't you tell me about Carl? And they said, well, he is very dark, isn't he? He's black. I reckon he was born in Africa. Uh, and not only that, strangely enough, he has the hair of Fabio, you know, long flowing golden locks. Uh, and he's built. Man, is he built. You know, he's a tank. He couldn't get you a door sideways. You know? Uh, and he hates cardigans. I know that.
0: <laughs>
1: he wouldn't be seen dead in a cardigan. <laughs> and he loves instant coffee. Dies for it. 20 cups a day. If someone came to you and said that, what would you say? <laughs> You'd say, That's right. You'd say you don't know Carl at all. I don't know who you think you know, but whoever it is, it's not Carl. You see, if you don't know the Jesus of the Bible, then you don't know Jesus, do you? You know somebody else, maybe someone that doesn't even exist. Now you have to know the Jesus who's revealed to us in the Scriptures. You have to have consciously embraced that Jesus. And if you haven't, whatever else it might feel like, actually you're in league with Satan. How do you know whose side you're on? Well, here's the first question. Are you with Jesus? If you're not with Jesus, you're against him. If you're not gathering with him, you're scattering. If you're not living for Jesus' kingdom, you're living for Satan's. Well, that's the first question, but uh, this powerful work of Christ masks also a a hidden danger. We're skipping to the end uh, of the section that we read now uh, in verse 43 and 45. Um, Interestingly enough, that section comes uh, much sooner in uh, the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 12, but that's just an aside. Anyway, Jesus returns uh, in verses 43 to 45 to the theme of demon possession. So, that's how the controversy began And that's what he returns to and he compares the people of his day uh, to a man who's set free from a demon. Uh, He he, uh, he talks about a man who's set free from this demon uh, and the demon goes off in search of a better place to live but he can't find anywhere and so he decides to go back home. Uh, And when he goes back he finds this man, uh, he's like a house, swept out, cleaned up, uh, unoccupied. It's It's a great place to live. Uh, It has great views uh, and uh, it's a great invitation to a restless demon. And uh, so the demon, quite uh, attracted by this prospect, decides to invite some of his friends as well and so he invites seven of his best mates to come and take up residence uh, in this person with the result that the person is in a worse condition than they were before. They had one demon before, now they have eight and Jesus is using what happened to that demon-possessed man as an illustration uh, of the situation that the world finds itself in. You see, that uh, demon-possessed man had a great, a remarkable, in fact, experience of God. Uh, he'd had a demon driven out, didn't he? He uh, he hadn't been able to speak uh, or to see, and now he could. But he needs more than that, Jesus says, otherwise his ultimate situation will be worse than before. The worst situation that Jesus is talking about is probably the final judgement. That is, Jesus' ministry and the grace of God are presently turning back the rule of Satan and the curse of sin uh, which hangs over our world. Uh, But if we're not careful... uh, the present grace of God and the present kindness of God will disappear and we'll be left in a worse situation than we were in before. If you think that our present circumstances are bad, if you think the present judgement of God, the curse of God over our world, if you think that sickness and pain and physical death are bad enough, then imagine how catastrophically awful the judgement of God in the last day will be. We can experience, you see, great grace from God. We can experience great kindness from God. But without something more, we won't avoid that final judgment. There's something more that's needed is repentance. Jesus makes that clear. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up and condemn the people of Jesus' day because the people of Nineveh Nineveh repented when Jonah preached to them. Jonah came and said, repent, you're not living for God, you don't know God, repent. And they did. Jesus says, the Queen of Sheba will stand up at the last day and condemn uh, his generation because she went over land and sea to discover the wisdom of God from God's King Solomon. The Pharisees wanted these miraculous signs, they wanted more indications, they, want, they wanted more power but Jesus just wanted repentance. And that same warning that Jesus gave to the Pharisees and the people of his day is a warning for us today as well. You see, the Bible is littered with examples. It's scary really. The Bible is littered with examples of people are who experience great grace of God, great kindness of God, and yet who don't know Christ? Listen uh, to this example from Hebrews chapter six. It's one of the most sobering uh, passages in the Bible, I think, which lists the experience of the experiences of people who've who've come close to knowing Christ, but but who haven't. Listen to what they to how they're described. They're people who have been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. It's those people, the writer of Hebrews says, who have trampled the Son of God underfoot and subjected him to public disgrace. See, we can experience great work of God in our lives without experienced in the great work of the Gospel. We can experience great work of God in our lives but not a saving work, not a work which saves us from the wrath of God. Indeed, the Holy Spirit might speak through us. It's astonishing to read through the Bible. You might think of Caiaphas, the high priest, who in the days uh, before Jesus' death, Caiaphas Spoke through the Holy Spirit, saying, "It's better for one man to die for the nation than for the whole nation to perish." He spoke through the Holy Spirit as he plotted to put Jesus to death. It's amazing, isn't it? You think of uh, of Balaam in the Old Testament. Balaam spoke through the Holy Spirit, but he was an evil man, a wicked god, a wicked man, totally opposed to God. Even Balaam's ass spoke. The power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the ultimate question is not, "Have I had a great experience of God? Has God done amazing things in my life? Has God healed me from sickness when I've prayed for it? Has God stirred my heart when I sung, sung songs in church?" Uh, has God opened the way for me to take that job when uh, when I prayed for it? Has have I been moved when I read the Bible? Ultimately, those aren't the most important questions. The most important question Jesus says is, "Have I turned from sin and fled to Jesus?" That's the most important question. And every other question doesn't matter. In the language of this last of the last little section that we read is not those who claim an acquaintance with Jesus, who are interested in his work or who are related uh, by his birth. They're not the people who are saved, but it's those who do the Father's will. It's those who repent and submit to Jesus' authority and power. And Jesus says if you've done that, if you've fled to him, if you've turned to him, if you've given your life over to him, then you belong to him and you're with him and you're gathering with him and you're his brother or sister or mother. So we have these two related questions. Are you with Jesus? How do I know? Well, have you turned and fled to Jesus? It's not about great experience. Have you turned from sin and fled to Jesus? But still, in many ways, that's a hard thing to evaluate, isn't it? It's hard to evaluate that. How do you know if you're with Jesus or not? How do you know if you've really turned from sin or not? Well, that question leads us uh, to the last uh, thing that we'll consider this morning and really the most baffling and most disturbing remarks I think that Jesus ever made in his whole ministry. Uh, Those remarks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, uh, and so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. They are, I think, probably the most chilling words uh, in the whole Bible. That there, could, that there could be limits to God's forgiveness is a horrible, a terrible, a, a, an overwhelming thought. And they're the kinds of, are words that have kept many people up, many Christian people up, given them sleepless nights uh, for many years. I think there are two pressing questions that uh, come to us when we're thinking about those words. The first is, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And the second is, why is blasphemy against the Son of Man forgivable? And why is blasphemy against the Spirit not Forgivable. Unfortunately, that second question is really hard to answer, uh, and I, you know, I've got some ideas on what the answer is, but I'm not going to uh, outline what they are. But I think, in truth, I don't think it matters. Uh, there's so much that we can understand. There's so much clarity about what Jesus is talking about here uh, that that question uh, is becomes somewhat secondary. Uh, we can answer the question: What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And why is it so terrible? There's, uh, there's lots of things to say, but let me focus uh, on a few key things. First, whatever Jesus means uh, here, it's, it's clear that it's intimately connected with what he's just said. So, verse uh, 31 begins with therefore. Literally, it begins with therefore. Uh, so, Jesus says, if you're not with me, you must be against me. Therefore I say every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Right? So that suggests that whatever blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, it's connected with being with Jesus versus not being with Jesus. Uh, The second thing to understand is the connection between this stuff about blasphemy against the Spirit and uh, what comes next in terms of good and bad trees. Uh, so, verse 31 and verse 36 begin in uh, very similar ways. Verse 36, I say to you every careless word men uh, which men speak. Uh, and then you've got in verse 30, uh, sorry, I've mucked it up. Verse 31, therefore I say to you every sin and blasphemy and versus verse 36, I say to you every careless word men uh, which men speak. So, you've got, therefore I say to you, I say to you, uh, you've got every sin and blasphemy, every careless word, right? So, there's this kind of parallelism there which is helpful to understand. So, the two, uh, those two verses begin in much the same way. What's confusing is the way that they end. Verse 31 says that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Verse 36 says that every careless word will need to be defended on the Day of Judgment. Every need will, Every word will need to be accounted for. Uh, some words will be forgiven, other words won't. Words against the Son of Man will be forgiven, words against the Spirit won't. Indeed, words are so powerful. Jesus says that by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be pronounced guilty. It's an extraordinary thought, I think, isn't it? Really. Uh, Because we think that words are small. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Uh, Or we say a picture is worth a thousand words by which we mean words aren't very important. Words aren't very useful. But that's not true really, is it? Because words begin relationships. Words build relationships and words can destroy relationships in a heartbeat. The words I do in the right context make a tremendous difference. The words I do in another context make almost no difference at all. And if we didn't believe that words were powerful and dangerous, Jesus says that just a few words can condemn a person to hell and just a few words can save a person for eternity. How can that be? How can words be so powerful? How can some words send people to hell and other words send people to eternal life? Well, the reason that words are so dangerous and so powerful, says Jesus, is because they reveal our inner nature. In, this, in between these two sections, uh, Jesus gives that illustration of the good and the bad trees and he, he says, it's a pretty obvious point, good trees produce good fruit and bad trees produce bad fruit. A friend of mine uh, bought a house about a year ago and in the backyard were all these fruit trees. Uh, but the garden hadn't been looked after for a very long time and so all these trees had kind of gone bad, if you like. And I there was one tree, I, I think it was an orange tree, and it was covered with oranges. But all the oranges were about the size of like a marble or something like that. Like They, they were tiny, they'd, they'd sort of grown... They, were, you know, they hadn't. It was a struggling tree. You didn't need to be a, kind of a brilliant horticulturalist to know that the tree was in a bad condition. You could look at the fruit and you could see this tree needs some help. And Jesus is saying it's the same with our words. You know, the words that we speak show the kind of person that we are. The words that we speak show our response to Jesus. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. A person with an evil heart speaks evil. A person with a good heart speaks good words. Uh, You might think of the Apostle Paul. He says, uh, without the Spirit, it's impossible for a person to say, Jesus is Lord. Or it's impossible for someone with the Spirit to say, Jesus be cursed. To get to the heart of what Jesus is saying here, it might be useful just to turn quickly to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 verse 8 where Jesus says more or less the same thing but he says it in another way which makes it a bit helpful I think. Luke chapter 12 verse 8 Jesus says, I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I think these verses are helpful because if we understand that what Jesus is doing is saying the same thing twice in two different ways, it helps us to understand what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit really is. Jesus says that whoever disowns me before men will be disowned in the heavenly assembly and whoever acknowledges Jesus before men will be acknowledged in the heavenly assembly. It makes sense to understand then that what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, is that continual disowning of Christ, that disowning, that public disowning of Christ, the rejection of the message of the Gospel. The issue is not uh, saying a few words uh, so much, uh, words of slander which can't be forgiven. The issue is disowning the Gospel. But still the truth remains that the words that we speak reveal our relationship to the Gospel. You see, one day each one of us will stand before Jesus uh, and will give an account for every word that we've spoken. Some of us will stand before Jesus on the Day of Judgment and say, Lord, uh, i followed you uh, and I trusted you. And Jesus will say to us, really? Did you really follow me? Because I could have sworn that you were the person who said... I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give that up for Christ. I could have sworn you were the one who kept saying, I don't care what God thinks about that. I could have sworn that you were the one who when people said, do you follow Christ? You said, I don't follow that loser. You see, the words that we've spoken throughout our lives will testify against us on the Day of Judgment. It won't be the words themselves that condemn us to hell. There will be lots of other sins that condemn us as well but it will be our words which testify against us and bear witness against us. On the other hand, some of us will stand before Jesus on the Day of Judgment and we'll say, Lord, I'm not fit to stand in your presence. And Jesus will say, no, but you are. How can that be? You'll say, how can that be, Jesus? Because I've left things undone that I should have done. Oh, I didn't love you as much as I should have. I didn't give up sin as much as I should have. There, there seemed to be years in my life when I was plagued by sin, and Jesus will say, yes, but you're the one who every day kept saying, Jesus, I can't get through today without you. You're the one who, when everybody else abandoned me to go their own way, you're the one who said, no, I'm going to follow Jesus. No, I'm going to cast my lot, my future in with him. You're the one who every night before bed spoke to your children about the love of Christ and prayed with your children about the hope of Christ. You see, my name was always on your lips. And that showed something. It's a great test, isn't it? It's a great test to think about the words that you say about Jesus and the gospel, about the Father, about the Spirit. Jesus isn't first of all talking about your evangelistic endeavours. He's not, he's not asking you whether you've shared the gospel and you've done two, two ways to live with uh, your next door neighbour. What he's asking is, did you acknowledge me? Did you claim me? Did you own me? Or did you reject me? Did you disown me? Did you dishonour me? I've been trying to apply that test to my life this week and I'm going to keep applying that test to my life. And I think every one of us should do the the same thing. Examine your words and think about what they say about your heart and your belief in the Gospel. Do they reveal a heart that loves Jesus and embraces Jesus or do your words reveal a heart that dishonours Jesus and disowns Jesus? It's a difficult question but it's an important question. Whose side are you on? In finishing, uh, let me just ask one last question, and that is to say, well, what if you do that? What if you go away and you examine your words, and you think about it, and you and you test, and you find that you've despised and disowned Jesus and the gospel? What should you do? Is it too late to repent? Uh, is it impossible to find forgiveness? The shorter answer is no. It's not. It's not too late because the point is that the person who has uh, the point is not sorry. That the person who has disowned Christ cannot find forgiveness. Rather, the point is that the person who has disowned Christ cannot find forgiveness without Christ, whom they've disowned. If you find that you've disowned Christ and dishonored the gospel, then the then the answer is. To turn to the Christ whom you've disowned and to find grace and mercy in him. To flee to him. It's the most astounding miracle of the gospel, isn't it? Is that we can turn to the one that we've condemned and ridiculed and disowned and rejected and hated and we can find mercy. Mercy. Who else can you do that with? So if you go away and examine your words and find that you've dishonoured Christ, then turn back to Christ and find in him the grace and mercy of God. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, The Pharisees in Jesus' day spoke hasty words against the gospel and against Jesus. And Lord, every single one of us has spoken words which dishonour Christ. Every single one of us has spoken words which talk lightly of Jesus, talk lightly of sin. Talk lightly of your judgment. Lord, every single one of us has spoken words that ought to send us to hell. And yet, Lord, we know that in Christ there is mercy and forgiveness. That if we but turn to him and throw ourselves down before him, that we can know you Lord, we know that we don't have to have perfect words. But we just need to acknowledge Christ. To claim him and to own him. And so, Father, we ask that each one of us would be enabled by your great power to do that. Lord, we ask that none of us would blaspheme the spirit or the Gospel to, whom the, to which the Spirit testifies. But that we would embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.